Hi everybody, my name is Greg Hancock, and along with my false positive friend Patrick Curran, we make up Quantitude. We're a podcast dedicated to all things quantitative, ranging from the relevant to the highly irrelevant. In today's episode, we talk about the control of type 1 error rate. Well, more like we say stuff, change our minds, say stuff, change our minds, and in the end, spoiler alert, reach no unified conclusion whatsoever. But we do manage to hit a number of relevant issues around type 1 error control, albeit largely accidentally and inconsistently. Along the way, we also mention porch witches, furries, serial killers, neuralizers, why some TAs should get hazard pay, lawyering up, rocking chairs in unison, the chi of the universe, how Patrick controls the pet population, all things Scottish, yellow lights, sleeping with the fishes, and Annie Hall. We hope you enjoy today's episode. Well, it's getting to be that time of year again. Have you picked out your Halloween costume yet? I have not. Uh-huh. I have to admit that for a number of years when the girls were young, where we would all go out as a family, I would not think about my costume until about 30 minutes before <laughs> we left. I would put on my martial arts outfit uh-huh. and pray that I did not run into my sensei. <laughs> How about you? I am not a dressing up kind of guy anymore. Certainly I was when I was a kid. What I do now is I'm usually the person who stays at home and hands out the candy, but that would be too simple. I have a witch that stands on the porch with a long cloak and under the witch's cloak, I have put an old baby monitor and I sit in the house with the microphone basically. And when a kid comes up on the porch, I talk to the kid in the witch's voice. (laughs) All the neighborhood kids know this, and each year when the kids come up on the porch, they will actually start talking to the witch before they will <laughs> knock on the door. It has only backfired, only backfired a couple of times. I've had a couple of screaming kids, but I do the whole, is that really a costume that you're wearing? Did you put much thought into that? I'm not sure. That looks like your martial arts dojo uniform. <laughs> Pretty lame, I would say. So you just insult all the children of the neighborhood. (laughs) It's not me, it's the witch. Yeah, it's not me, it's the witch. (laughs) You know what I'm also envisioning is that when you have uh, sensitive conversations with your wife is that you say, So, (laughs) did you really think? You know what I thought I might do Hmm. is dress up as a lemur. In honor of Jiffy. Oh. Now, given there's going to be no trick-or-treating, I would mm. dress up as a lemur and just sit in my room, which my daughters might say <laughs> makes me a furry. But we'll set that issue aside. I got a couple of questions about where did Jiffy come from, right? Mm-hmm. The origin story of Jiffy. A friend of mine named Aaron works at the Duke Lemur Center. So cool. For those of you who aren't familiar, the Lemur Center is a major resource in protecting and preserving lemurs. They have a whole line of jars where there are lemurs inside. So that's a lemur <laughs> preservation center. I thought about what would be a funny gag for something using SPSS to do factor analysis. And I thought, oh, a baby lemur. And then you Mm -hmm. put factor analysis on the monitor and Chris Preacher emailed you and said, the lemur is doing little Jiffy, which Mm -hmm. is a particular kind of factor analysis. And thus Jiffy was born. Yes. October 30th, which is just in a few days, is World Lemur Day. Wow. The Duke Lemur Center is having a big event. They can't do any tours, and so they are having real difficulty financially, and so they're trying to do a fundraiser. If you're interested out there and it looks like it's a lot of fun and also support lemurs, I don't even know what the webpage is. Just go to the Duke Lemur Center. It's October 30th. Maybe I'll try to dress up as a lemur. So at what age do you stop trick-or-treating? That's what I want to know. I know it's, I know this is a weird year, but and your daughters are 16 now. Would they have trick-or-treated this year? They love trick-or-treating, mm-hmm. and they did it at least last year, ironically. When they were kids, were there any costumes that really stick with you as they grew up? So we did the usual when they were very young of unicorns and princesses and things like that. I really admired that both of them as they moved into 8 or 10 or 12 
they did these kind of clever play on words. And so one year, my daughter was dressed in all black and borrowed one of my knives and stuck it through a Cheerios box Mm -hmm. with blood on it. And she was a serial killer. (laughs) And another one, my daughter went as a test that had a big F on it. And so her greatest fear was failing a test. (laughs) Sydney, you know, went through the standard kinds of things like a cat and Lilo from Lilo and Stitch, the Disney thing. Jane Goodall one year, which I thought was very Mm. cool. The boys tried to do gory things and scary things, headless things that my favorite from the boys was they had seen the Men in Black series of movies. And so they wanted to go out as Men in Black. We had them in little black suits. They had on glasses. They had on little name badges that had the Men in Black logo on it, the whole deal. They went to people's porches and people thought they were religious kids trying to convert them. (laughs) And the boys with their sunglasses on, they would hold up the neuralizer, you know, the thing that's Uh supposed to erase people's memories. This is called a neuralizer. It's a gift from some friends from out of town. And you just get older people looking at them like, what what are they doing? I don't know. (laughs) So... That didn't go as well as we had hoped. Now, what would you do as a kid? I would say that the costumes from when I was growing up, none of them would fly today. They would either not fly for reasons of content or safety. The <laughs> right, the the mask that you couldn't see through the eye slits, the costume that if you got anywhere near an open flame, you would burst into flames. I think I will spend much of my adult life making sure that none of those pictures ever see the light of day. (laughs) My entire upbringing with costumes was irrelevant because I was in Denver. It was October 31st before the planet caught on fire and went up 10 degrees. It would routinely snow in October and... So it was a moot point because when we would go trick-or-treating, my mom would wrap us in my big (laughs) parka and my cap. And so it was almost irrelevant what my costume was. Oh. So if we transition in the spirit of Halloween, I think we should talk about things that scare us. (laughs) What is something that scares you? Well, every year around this time, there's a meme that gets circulated. It's a pumpkin. Carved into the pumpkin is the scariest statistical thing ever. And it says P equals (laughs) 0.06. And almost certainly everybody out there has seen it by now. I love that. I laugh every time I see it. The idea that failing to reject a null hypothesis is somehow really, really spooky. To researchers, that might be spooky. But to statisticians, I don't know that that's so spooky. I mean, it's really not a big deal. You won't get promoted. You won't get tenured. You won't get a grant. Nobody will publish your paper. And you will end up working for no pay on a podcast. So why should that be spooky? (laughs) I don't remember when it was, but it was a couple of episodes ago. You said something about how it was like you live your life with type one and type two errors as your guide, or or those are the things that you think about. Do you remember it all? Yeah, I think we were talking about abject hypocrisy and how difficult it is to be a member inside my life because I am so hypocritical. I am uncomfortable with null hypothesis testing and the entire architecture, Hmm. yet I still think a great deal about type 1 and type 2 error. And how I appreciate that there's the Sesame Street, one of these things is not like the other, Mm -hmm. but I am concerned about a Neiman Pearson Fisher catatonic march toward null hypothesis testing. Mm -hmm. Yet, I think it's critically important we think about things like false positives and false negatives. So that, I think, was the genesis of my comment. Mm -hmm. The way I think about it is that we do tons and tons of things to try to avoid the type 2 error, right? We want to make sure that we do not miss that particular effect. And it comes in play when we design our study, the techniques that we use to analyze our data, all of that, right? We work very, very hard to do that. Then there's this other side, this type 1 error side. And Not only am I not sure we work hard to control it, I think we're not sure what to do about it. I think we're horribly inconsistent when it comes to our behavior around type 1 error, the way we think about it. Is a type 1 error scary to you? I'm originally trained 
and clinical psych, and we talk a lot about risk and protective factors and treatment efficacy and interventions and things like that. And I think through that trajectory, I came to fear type 1 error. I don't want to say there's a group difference when there really is not. I do not want to say a treatment is effective when it's really not. I don't want to say there's a subgroup difference on something when there's really not. And so, of course, I appreciate type 2 and power. But yeah, I do worry about making a recommendation for an intervention or a policy change or identifying at-risk youth when maybe that's not a reliable effect. I have to tell you, I have gone back and forth on whether or not type 1 error control is something that bothers me. And the way you just described it is really good. It's really nice when you think about it from the perspective of treatment and control groups or a variety of different groups that you want to know about differences among. In fact, I remember the first time that I was formally exposed to the idea of type 1 error control was in the context of what we often call multiple comparison procedures, right? Names like Tukey and Newman Cools and Chaffee and a lot of other people too. Those are historically the kinds of names that come up. And it was just like, yes, you must do this. And I drank the type 1 error Kool-Aid for sure. And yet I don't do it in other aspects of my life. When I run a regression, I don't say, oh my gosh, look at all those slope coefficients. When I do a structural model, I don't say, oh my gosh, look at all of those path coefficients. When I do a correlation matrix, just compute a correlation matrix, I don't say, oh my gosh, look at all of those tests of correlations. I'm not quite sure why some aspects of my life I feel really historically anyway tied to type 1 error control, whereas in other aspects of my statistical life, it doesn't even come up on my radar. This is a very common question I get when I teach things like SEM or longitudinal SEM, Mm -hmm. where you can have a model that routinely has 30 or 40 or 50 estimated parameters, each of which you take at 0.05, and someone will sheepishly raise a hand and will say, well, I remember in my first year grad stats class, That if you do five post-hoc comparisons, you have to divide the alpha level by five. Why aren't we doing that here? And I never have a good answer to that. Mm -hmm. I'll vaguely say, well, you're doing five mean comparisons on the same dependent variable, and all of these are different variables, and so those same kind of concepts don't Mm -hmm. apply here. Now, that's not actually true, Mm -hmm. but it makes the student put down their hand. And so from my perspective, it's kind of a Mm win-win. I had a silly thing I did in an undergrad stats class once when I was trying to describe the difference between a per-test error rate and a family-wise error rate. So what I would do is I would have a TA come up and make him face the wall. All right, Mm -hmm. so his back is to me in the class. Then I would face the class, but my back would be to the TA. So we had our backs to each other. Mm -hmm. And we had a big whiteboard. And for some reason, there were like 20 of these dry eraser pens, every one of which is dried out and can't be used. Mm -hmm. But nobody (laughs) takes the wherewithal to throw them away. And so I have a whole arm load of pens. I held up the pen and I said, there is a 5% chance that I'm going to hit Mike with this pen. And then I whipped it really hard over my shoulder Mm -hmm. and it smacked against the wall. And I said, all right, that was 5% chance. So then I picked up another one and I said, there's a 5% chance I'm going to hit him with this one. And I whip it over my shoulder. And Mm -hmm. then I say this one and whipped it and whipped it. And I threw like 10 pens Mm -hmm. and invariably one of them whacked him in the back of the head. (laughs) And he was like, ow. He was like, damn, dude. I mean, I hadn't told him this was going to happen. And he was like, that was hard. And I, I turned around and I, I said, look, I got like eight pens left. I said, quit whining. Uh-huh. And he was like, but you just hit me with a pen. And I said, but there's only a 5% chance uh-huh. that I'm going to hit you. And he was like, with that pen, but you got eight of them left. And I turned around and I was like, that's family-wise error rate. Uh-huh. <laughs> I said, I worry about the per pen throwing He wants to know if he's going to get hit by at least one of the pens. 
Right. And then we had like an hour conversation about that. So that for me is my lecture on per test type one error rate and a family-wise type one error rate. I think that that's an outstanding example. And the only person who might disagree is Mike. <laughs> and to this day, he still complains about it. So <laughs> big baby. So let me put you on the spot. I want to. I want to. Give... How would today be any different okay. than any other day? All right. All right. Here we go. Imagine you do a statistical test and you get P equals 0.04 on that test. <laughs> you say, okay, yeah, that, I got a significant result. Now you do another test and I'm not going to tell you what the result is, but I'm going to tell you now, should you go change the result of the first test that you did? What do you mean change the result? I can't change the result. You can change the inference that you make. Okay, I can change the inference. So one thing I think students, especially when they're first learning this, confuse is p-value and alpha. Because those are not the same. The p-value is an area under a curve that we integrate between two cut points to understand what is the probability we would have observed our effect if the null hypothesis holds the p-value of 0.04 indicates there is less than a 4% chance I would have observed a test statistic this larger, larger, if the null hypothesis held in the population, whatever that null is. Maybe it's often equal to zero, but it doesn't have to be. We mm -hmm. could do a whole variety of things, all right? So the p-value remains unchanged. As you're alluding to, the inference can change. If I set my alpha level, which traditionally is represented the type 1 error, we're back to things at your fingertips. If some drunken person stops you in an alleyway and says, what is type 1 error? Mm -hmm. Do you say it is the probability of rejecting the null when the null is true? Colloquially, it's saying there's an effect when there's really not an effect. Because Fisher 120 years ago grew corn and had a throwaway line that said, in my experience, events that occur greater than 1 in 20 may be significant. Something mm -hmm. like that, I'm paraphrasing. All right, so going back to your question is if I get an 04 when I did a single test, I said, oh, that's below my alpha of 05 where I'm going to say it is unlikely I would have observed this result under the null hypothesis. If I do a second test, I still have a P less than 04, but I would have a temptation to change my alpha a little bit. Mm-hmm. Because one of my premises of what I love about statistics is it's fair. Mm -hmm. And if you're throwing two pens, each taken at 0.05, don't you have a hankering to knock that alpha down a little bit more and make it harder to say that you identify an effect as reliably different from zero? So yeah, I might just for fairness knock that down a little bit. All right. So the first test is sitting there going... I don't even know that guy. And you're allowing the context of both tests to influence how they're interpreted. That's what you're saying. I feel like you're the cop who is trying <laughs> to get me to say something while the recorder is running. Uh-huh. And yes, I know a lot of my analogies are being interviewed by cops, yeah. and that should be taken to mean nothing at all. Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay. Let's continue on these lines and don't lawyer up on me here. I never do. <laughs> okay. I never do. All right. And then I wish I had. So imagine now that you do the second test tomorrow. Do you want to go back and adjust the alpha level for the test that you did yesterday? Is it the same model, the same sample? Does it matter? Yeah. Why? Because if we extend your argument to the logical end, then at the end of our career, we uh -huh. should have taken every test we've ever done and divide by that many uh -huh. and then go back and adjust all of our p-values. Exactly. Yeah, it does matter. Whether it's within a given sample, given measures, and given analyses, or you do a t-test on one sample on Monday and you do a t-test on another sample on Tuesday, no, I don't think that those are related to one another. And I don't think that you would need to adjust your alpha rate to represent those two tests. Okay. There's a line somewhere that you are drawing. And I think the ambiguity of this, and I think it completely captures my own inconsistency, has to do with what the heck is a family and family-wise error rate? Fredo, you're my older brother, and I love you. But don't ever take sides with anyone against the family again. 
ever. Historically, when we first learned about this kind of stuff, in the context of comparing a bunch of means, typically, it felt very natural that they're all part of the same family of studies. They involve the same outcome variable, their manipulations on the same independent variable. The thought of a family didn't really even occur to us because it was very natural. When we do the kind of paper that one sees often in some of the leading psychology journals where there might be experiment one, and there's everything about that, and then there's experiment two and everything about that, and then there's experiment three, everything about that. Is each of the experiments a family? Is each of the variables within an experiment a family? Or is the whole study a family? For me, it's not an easy question to answer because they are all statistical tests. I'm not entirely sure where to draw the line, but I think this is probably the key issue about whether or not one does uh, exact control. I completely agree on the genesis of the issue because when you and I both took a Nova from Fisher himself, <laughs> it was much clearer. Let's take a super simple example as we have an analysis of variance with one factor and five levels. So we're comparing five groups on a single dependent variable. And the null hypothesis is all group means are equal. Mm -hmm. We reject that null based on some alpha level, and the conclusion is not all means are equal, or at least two means are different. And then you can have plan comparisons, or you can have post hoc comparisons. Is let's say you then say, well, I'm going to examine which means are different. And so you do all possible comparisons. Well, for five groups, there are what? Five times four over two, ten unique comparisons, group mm -hmm. one to two, one to three, one to four, and so on. And so you have 10 independent comparisons. And then very logically, you say, oh, yeah, that doesn't seem fair, right? There's kind of an equity. There's a perceived equity. Mm -hmm. If it's like, oh, gosh, that doesn't seem fair if you do one to two and one to three and one to four and one to five and so on. And so instead of taking each of those at an alpha of 05, at its most extreme, let's divide alpha by 10. Mm-hmm. And then that'll be our per comparison. It's very, very logical. But if you had a 10 predictor regression model, where you have one dependent variable and 10 predictors and 10 coefficients, rarely, if ever, will someone even make a comment about multiplicity in testing. And each of those are routinely taken at 05. In some way, that's a very, very different application. But in some ways, it's exactly the same. It was where you were trying to trick me into admitting that I was the one who started the fire. <laughs> if you're taking 10 tests, each at an alpha of 05, if you're doing 10 post hoc mean comparisons on a single dependent variable, why would you not do that in a 10 predictor regression? Mm -hmm. There is an asymmetry. I am very uncomfortable with things that are not symmetric. <laughs> It makes me very uncomfortable. Preaching to the choir, buddy. <laughs> and I am preaching to the choir, which is yet another reason why we found each other in our day treatment programs and ended up sitting next to each other on the front porch, rocking our chairs in perfect unison. There is an asymmetry there that is very disturbing to me. But let's make it a little bit more complicated is for that to be really disturbing, in my opinion, one, you have to firmly hook your horse to the null hypothesis statistical testing procedure, mm -hmm. that there is a null hypothesis out there, that the sampling distribution is meaningful, and that the rules of the game, right, that we talked about with Roy a few episodes ago, mm -hmm. that you drink the Kool-Aid on the null hypothesis and how we go about doing business, and that an alpha of O5 is somehow sacrosanct that that is somehow meaningful as a universal cutoff of a 1 in 20. That's where my hypocrisy comes up. I don't know to what extent I buy both of those things, yet I still remain worried about this family-wise versus per comparison issue. The inconsistencies, even within this very narrow general linear modeling space, is really very clear. For example, those 10 pairwise comparisons that you described could be done in the form of contrast variables that you create and do that all within some sort of regression. But when you do other regressions with different predictors, you don't control, but here mm -hmm. you, you think you need to. If I had something as simple as four means, just four little old means, and if I wanted to compare one and two with three and four, I might say, okay, that's one contrast as it's typically called. 
And if I want to compare one and three with two and four, that's another contrast. And if I want to compare, you know, <laughs> whatever the other possi- mm-hmm. another possibility, I might say, oh my gosh, those are three tests on the same set of means. And then we make some sort of adjustment because we are trained to do so. And yet if I took those four means and I put them in the cells of a two by two design and I talked about the A main effect, the B main effect, and the A by B interaction, we often don't think about that, even though they're exactly the same set of contrasts. So there's even inconsistency in practice within the same space. So you raised the issue that I think is partly at the crux of this. One is the issue of family, which we're going to have to talk about because I don't know what the heck a family is and family-wise error. But the other is whether or not there's anything to control for in the first place. Do you believe in the existence of a null hypothesis? You know, are we controlling for nothing? And this is where it really gets away from you, Mm -hmm. right? Is I want to play both sides of the ball. Mm-hmm. I want to take a high road and say, well, I don't believe there is no effect in the population, right? Go back to the 1990s, Jack Cohen's papers. We've talked about those on prior episode. The Earth is round, P less than 05. Uh, these are well-tread grounds. But I will very strongly say, no, I don't believe the regression is zero in the population. I don't believe that there's a fixed alpha 0.05, right? So that's one side. Like I can play defense, Mm -hmm. but then I want to go back out on the field and also play offense and say, well, there is evidence to support the stress negative affect model of substance use because the indirect effect has a p-value less than O2. Mm-hmm. And so I kind of want to have it both ways. And it is, let's say that at best is inconsistent. I somehow want to go no-go decision on whether my theory is right or not. Mm-hmm. But also you would get dinged in a paper if you did a multiple comparison of even three means. If you did a one versus two, one versus three, and two versus three, and took those each at 0.05, you would get slammed in that. Mm -hmm. But if you had a multiple indicator latent factor and three factors, and you had 30 factor loadings, nobody would ask for an adjustment. Mm -hmm. You could take each of those at 0.05 and not one reviewer is gonna say anything. And I think we have to reconcile that inconsistency in the field because I think that we've ignored that for too long. So you don't believe in null hypotheses, but you want to retain a system that still uses them as a frame of reference? I admit that there are internal inconsistencies to (laughs) Uh that line of argument. Uh Yeah. It's a hard one for me, too, in a variety of ways. This has come up before to varying degrees, to more degrees, but you edited them out. Um, (laughs) (laughs) One issue is, do we really think there's no effect whatsoever? And when you say it like that, it's very difficult to imagine because you have all these variables that you deeply believe in that this particular X variable should have some particular effect on a Y. Part of the reconciliation of this for me is thinking about things at a population level. And I've heard people say, yeah, but if we actually go out and get the physical populations, there has to be a difference. They cannot be exactly equal. I think that's specious in the sense that when we typically think about null hypotheses, I think we don't typically make them concrete in this moment with these people, and I don't think we make it a finite thing. I think the null hypothesis really is more of a long-run expected value across space and time. So I find that argument a little bit lame. Something that I had said before is that there are plenty of null hypotheses that I firmly believe in. For example... I stick a pin in a Patrick Voodoo doll every single day. Is there some small effect? I mean, if we really think about it, the disturbance of the chi of the universe, Mm -hmm. I don't know. Are you willing to say, well, there has to be some effect? I mean, I intend that obviously to be somewhat rhetorical, but here's the thing. If I firmly believe in the power of the Voodoo doll and I am operating from a perspective where I say, well, of course this will have some effect. It's just a matter of us having enough power to detect that effect. 
How is that any different from anybody else believing in their treatment too? I think it's easier to dismiss things that we go, that doesn't make any sense, right? If we don't believe in them. But how do we know that other people don't bring the same passion for the things that they care about and the same disregard for those things that they don't? So I am okay with the concept of a null hypothesis. I am okay with the concept of a treatment not having any effect whatsoever no matter how compelling the argument is. I completely agree, and that's the foundation of what I've said earlier today, but also in prior episodes, that I am actually okay with the null hypothesis testing mm -hmm. framework. If jabbed with a stick at a party by a wine-swirling colleague who says, oh, but the null hypothesis is always false. All you need is a large enough sample size, so null hypothesis testing is really a test of how large your sample is. Mm -hmm. And you say, yeah, you perfectly paraphrased what Cohen said, just pretending that it was your own insight. boy. Excuse me, I have to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Let me take a step back. I am comfortable with the concept of the null hypothesis and null hypothesis testing and the architecture. Mm -hmm. I don't mind that. How likely is it you would have observed your test statistic if this particular condition were to hold in the unknown population? I'm okay with that. How I sleep at night is I don't take that as the only source of decision-making when I'm trying to understand my own data and my own findings. And what I mean is, I don't see a p-value and an alpha value as the only light switch, as the only go, no-go, mm -hmm. there is a treatment effect, there's not a treatment effect. Stealing one of your lines that I like, which is, I got 99 problems and family-wise error correction ain't one of them. <laughs> Let's move from a simple GLM in terms of whether it be a NOVA, whether it be a regression, go to an SEM. And let's think about a path model. All right, so let's squid spleen a little bit here. I'm going to slap you with a squid spleen. We have parent alcoholism to parenting to stress to negative affect to peer use to adolescent alcohol use. And we have a whole chain in the mediating model. We get an indirect effect and we take it over its standard error. It's 0.03, but we have three mediating mechanisms and somebody says, oh, well, you need to adjust your alpha because you did three specific indirect effects. Mm -hmm. And I say, dude, think about the problems that we got that ain't got nothing to do with dividing 0.05 by 3, mm -hmm. right? Those parameter estimates are only valid to the extent to which we don't have a misspecification somewhere in the model. Mm -hmm. Some of these are going to be biased high. Some of these are going to be biased low. Those standard errors are only valid to the extent to which we're meeting normality on the residuals. And sure, we can adjust with a robust maximum likelihood, but not all of these are on a continuum. We have a Likert scale. <gasps> A kitten dun, just dun, died. Dun. Oh, God. I'm sorry, Fluffy. Oh, no. I'm sorry, Fluffy. Oh. <laughs> and so, Likert, 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 Likert. <laughs> oh, my God. I didn't want her brothers and sisters to live without her. Wow. <laughs> there are so many other things in hmm. missing data, misspecification, non-normality, non-linearity, that <laughs> dividing 0.05 by 3... I just couldn't care less about. And so hmm. if we have an indirect effect using a delta method, shut up, preacher, is that's for me an empirical datum in a principled argument that I'm making across the body of the model. Mm -hmm. What empirical evidence do I have to support this hypothesized etiological mechanism given my data it moves us into what may be a highly related topic, which is we turn to replication, hmm. right? It becomes a replicability issue. I got so many other worries in my path model <laughs> that alpha inflation don't even make the list. So this is the, it's all crap argument. It's all crap. <laughs> if it ain't Scottish, it's crap. It's crap. <laughs> Welcome to all things Scottish. Our slogan is, if it's no Scottish, it's crap! Uh, <laughs> I gotta tell you, I am not far from that. Yeah. Because Lee and Hirschberger just had a little chill that went through them <laughs> as they're having coffee wherever they are out in the world and saying, dude, 
your precious little model is one mm. of 218 that all have the same likelihood. Mm-hmm. Right is yeah. Go ahead and fix all the clocks on the Titanic to the same time. It don't f- matter. I don't know how to react to what you said. At the end of the day, I'm going to agree. But en route to that, I'm having problems. Each of your parameters has a Z value with a maximum likelihood framework. Should we ignore those? Because ah, those are all predicated on assumptions that don't hold. What things do we pick and choose and say? I believe in this thing, even though the rest of it is crap. And which things do we say, I don't need to worry about that because it's all crap. And I don't know the answer to that. And that's sort of rhetorical. I do agree that however you choose to control for type 1 error or not, at the end of the day, maybe there are other criteria we should be using to make these decisions. Other things that maybe make for a greater coherence, not just within a given study, but across science, which I think is the ultimate goal that you're talking about. For me, it goes back to building a principled argument of empirical evidence to support your hypotheses one dimension of which are Mm p-values, but others are the stability of the model, alternative models, competing models, effect sizes, Mm -hmm. right? One of the first things that we learn in regression are squared semi-partials. I love squared Mm semi-partials. They're wonderful little guys, right? As you, instead of a one standard deviation unit, change in the predictor is a one standard deviation change in the DV with a standardized beta Mm -hmm. when they're both on these knucklehead scales anyway. Mm -hmm. A one standard deviation unit on I neither agree nor disagree to I moderately agree. Who cares? Mm -hmm. But the SR squared value is of the total variability in the dependent variable, what proportion is uniquely associated with that predictor above and beyond all other predictors? We learn that in regression, but that's not been universally ported over to the SEM. There's not a column in the computer output that gives SR squareds. But if you have a p-value and an effect size, a standardized regression coefficient, an SR squared, you consider competing models. You look at modification indices. You try to understand the stability of the model. And is there a misspecification that speaks to you? Or do you just have drips and drabs of that? And you build an argument to the reader in support of your general thesis You present that to the scientific community, and then it's expected that that will be built upon in future work. I can totally sleep at night with that as an approach where a p-value is a component. Mm -hmm. It is one bullet racked into the clip of many bullets, but it's just one. So that sounds inconsistent with your initial worry that type 1 errors scare you a little bit, proclaiming that a treatment is effective when it isn't. Yeah, welcome to my family's experience Uh with me. It's completely inconsistent. Uh And this is a cornerstone of my personality. (laughs) My girls are 16, and they are learning how to drive. I have this thing where my brother says, all drivers have an area before an intersection with a stoplight where if it turns yellow that they'll stop mm-hmm. and it varies over people of what how long that distance is mm-hmm. and he said you don't have one of those <laughs> and just the other day mm-hmm. i made a yellow light right as long as your bumper crosses that That's white right. line you're in the intersection and i made a yellow light and my daughter turned to me and i was right here in town in chapel hill and she said you were going 65 miles an hour <laughs> And I said, but I made the light. (laughs) And she said, what would you have done had I been driving and did that? And I said, oh, probably not allowed you to drive for a week until you better learn that. And she Uh said, yeah, that's right. Uh So, of course, it's inconsistent. Right. (laughs) I struggle with that myself, right? There is an inconsistency, but I also think that's part of the fun of what we do. That's part of the challenge. So, quantitude has turned into way more of a personality test of you than I ever expected it would. We're learning a lot of things. Yeah, mostly that I'm wildly defensive and (laughs) deeply inconsistent and lash out when I feel like I'm being attacked. Uh But other than that, I'm a super pleasant guy to be around. 
Yeah. Are there circumstances then under which you would control the type one error? No. Well, okay then. In my own work, there is not one application in which I would do a family-wise type one error control rate. And the reason is, is as a field, we already do not have statistical power to get out of a paper bag. Mm -hmm. And why in God's name would you have a statistical power of 0.3 on an alpha of 05? And let's go ahead and reduce that by 80%. Mm -hmm. Okay, so then you fear type 2 errors quite a bit. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. Oh, yeah. All right, so that means that your life has no Tukey in it. Your life has no Newman and Cools. No, I don't, because I do not believe a p-value on mm -hmm. a shelf under a little glass dome means something. Mm -hmm. And to have a Chefe or a Tukey or an honest statistical difference test, I think that you commit yourself that somehow that means something, and I take it to be damn near an effect size. All right, so I'm mentally replaying things that you have said throughout this conversation. And I remember when I said, if you do one study or one experiment or one test, I guess it was with a P of 0.04, you would reach a particular conclusion if you're a 0.05 level kind of person. And then when you did the next test, I asked whether or not you would go back and adjust the result of that if those tests were part of the same family, whatever that means. And I think you said you would adjust it. And so here, it seems like you are not endorsing any form of type 1 error. So help me understand that. I think you nicely characterized it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, <laughs> so, so what do you, so how do you, how, how do you, how are, how do you be you? <laughs> and how does anybody around yeah, you? <laughs> I, I would like to say that people have not posed that same question to me, but um, it's difficult to be me and to live inside my head. Mm -hmm. But also it goes back to a point I made just a little bit ago. I actually view this as part of the fun of what we do, part of the challenge of what we do. How do you reconcile that? So the throwing the pens at my TA, mm -hmm. I am concerned about the per pen probability. My TA is concerned about the set of pens probability. Okay, we can both be concerned about those. I guess my opinion is we need to hold both views simultaneously. Maybe it's one of these zen cones of what is the sound of one hand clapping. Bart, I have a riddle for you. What's the sound of one hand clapping? Piece of cake. No, Bart, it's a 3,000-year-old riddle with no answer. It's supposed to clear your mind of conscious thought. No answer? Lisa, listen up. <laughs> I think we need to hold these two thoughts simultaneously, and I really mm -hmm. do mean this, mm -hmm. is we need to think about not adjusting and we need to think about adjusting at the same time. And I don't think those are irreconcilable differences. I think it goes back to building that principled argument in support of our thesis at hand. And then again, I don't mean to throw out a lasso and pull it in, but I think it goes to replication. Okay. So you have killed Bonferroni. Well, not killed, but... Yeah, but, he's already dead. Okay. Okay. Uh, Olive Dunn, who ushered in Bonferroni into the multiple comparison world, she's out. Uh, Tuki, Donette, Shafay, all of these people for you. Dead, dead, dead. <laughs> They're all dead to me. Shafay sleeps with the fishes. What the hell is this? That's a Sicilian message. That means Luca Brasi sleeps with the fishes. <laughs> okay. Uh, I kind of like Chaffee, but uh, that's fine. So it's very hard for me to argue that we shouldn't take a model-based approach to these things. I actually prefer to think about these from a model-based perspective that came up in the model-based thinking episode that there are different ways to approach things, even down to the level of comparing means. Right? So you got yes. four means, and there are different models for their equality, inequality, etc. And you can use criteria that aren't p-values 
to reconcile those kinds of models. You can use information criteria. You can use a host of other things, model comparisons if you want, which again, ultimately can come down to a p-value if it's done through likelihood ratio tests, through tests of R-squared change, your SR-squareds. There is one last nail to put in a coffin, and that is false discovery rates. In the last 20 years or so, there has been this movement away from defining type 1 error control in the context of a family of things or experiment-wise type 1 error control into a false discovery rate paradigm. Now, that hasn't permeated everything, but when I sit on grant panels, applied grant panels, that comes up a lot. Have they applied false discovery rate kinds of methods to help control issues around type 1 error? How do you feel about where that's situated in all of this? Do you want to tell us about it first? Yeah, I think it's a variation of the same theme. I like it quite a bit. This is half technically accurate, but half colloquial. If you think about a straight family-wise correction, the most brutal is if you have an alpha of 05 as your family-wise and you have 10 tests that you're doing, you divide 05 by 10, and then there are variations of that, as we've talked about before. Mm -hmm. But what it is is the denominator is how many tests have you conducted. And the false discovery rate is the denominator is how many significant tests were identified. So you shouldn't be punished by the non-significant. So let's say you do 10 pairwise comparisons, but five on their own are non-significant. Well, dividing by 10 is an extreme correction. And so the false discovery rate when you think, and again, forgive me for a colloquialism, although it's in the neck of the woods technically, Benjamini Hochberg, 1995, <laughs> where Journal of the Royal Statistical Society, I mean, they were hardcore guys laying out hardcore analytic proofs on this stuff. <laughs> the false discovery rate is of those quote-unquote discoveries, meaning rejected null hypotheses, what's the expected value of those that are false? So that are incorrect rejections of a true null hypothesis. That's a false discovery rate. Mm -hmm. And the motivation was the punch in the face with the Sheffet and the Bonferroni is with respect to power. We know unambiguously that if we want to maintain a family type 1 error rate of 0.05, we can control that, but our power just goes to near zero. I mean, that's the whole thing that goes back in the 1950s, people were arguing about this. So the false discovery rate is seen as kind of a middle ground. We're still trying to protect against those incorrect rejections of true null hypotheses, while maintaining some degree of power. And so Benjamini Hochberg, if you're not familiar with that, you should go look at it. It's really quite interesting. You rank order your p-values from low to high. You compute a cutoff that brings in what is the acceptable false discovery rate that you want to maintain in your set of tests. And then you use that and cut off at that Rate and the ones that are above that are deemed as significance and the ones that are below are not. Mm -hmm. A lot of very, very positive things with that. But still, even the motivation for that really was around this single dependent variable where you're doing multiple comparisons and you rank order these p-values. I find it very hard to think about how would you do that for 30 factor loadings. It certainly applies for 30-factor loadings, right? Because you can they can line up all the p-values you want, right? Your whole career's worth of p-values you can line up. For me, A, I think it's mathematically very ingenious. B, I think it maybe aligns more with the way people think about type 1 error, right? You want to control the number of mistakes that you make. And so it defines type 1 error control a little bit differently. So I think it has some logic to it. It has the collateral benefit of giving you more power. But other than that, it doesn't, for me, quite address the philosophy of what we're doing more broadly. So it doesn't address whether or not we believe in type 1 errors in the first place. 
and it still doesn't take a more model-based approach to thinking about things, right? And what you have described and what we have talked about previously is really avoiding this whole issue. And it's not avoiding the whole issue because we don't care about type 1 errors. It's not avoiding the whole issue because we're worried about power specifically. It's avoiding the whole issue because we see statistics as more of an evidentiary argument where we have a context, that context is a model, we have competing models, we understand that they're only approximations to things and we're fine with that. I think in the end, my view about type 1 error control, and no question you could probably paint me into a corner with specific examples, but... My broader view of things is that we will get farther if we worry less about the third decimal place of our alpha level and more about understanding systems as a whole. And if your 30 factor loadings are contained within a broader model, I want them to be a part of that context. And I'm willing to take the hit that I might say, ooh, some loadings were significant that weren't. I'm I'm willing to take that hit because I'm trying to understand a system as a whole. You know what's interesting is a lot of this stuff goes back 50 years. Those ghosts of Chaffee and Tuki mm-hmm. still wander the halls, <laughs> as they appropriately should, mm-hmm. right? Is that we're in the time of this pandemic and all of the news is talking about the vaccine trials. And if you have a double-blind, randomized, clinical-controlled trial, I kind of want to see some of these protections built in where there is pretty strong evidence that a vaccine is effective versus not effective if we're going to push out 100 million doses. And eh, it might actually be a false discovery. But what's also interesting is this isn't just dusty shelf kind of stuff. Have you ever met Samantha Anderson? I have not met her. I know who she is, but I haven't met her. She's an assistant professor at Arizona State University. Student is Scott Maxwell. Scott is one of my heroes in Mm -hmm. the field. Good guy. Oh, boy. He's one of the good guys. Mm -hmm. I mean, he's not only an incredibly important quantitative methodologist, but just a remarkable human being. Samantha worked with him at Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. It was a little frustrating to me because I tried to recruit Samantha down to Carolina, Mm -hmm. and she had an offer from ASU, and I tried to recruit her to Carolina, and the only thing that stopped me from getting her was I had no position and no money. (laughs) Other than that, it was really, really close. But she has done really wonderful work on replication crisis, on power, on sample size determination. But you've probably seen this. She has a wonderful article in this year's Psych Methods, Mm -hmm. and it is on misinterpreting the Mm p-value. And it's not just the usual, it's not the probability of the null hypothesis. She starts there of the misinterpretation. But then she weaves this really wonderful argument that goes into everything that we're talking about here mm-hmm. about is it the what does a p value reflect about the probability of the null? What does the p value reflect about the probability of the alternative? And she weaves this very compelling argument that it reflects very little about either the null or the alternative. Mm-hmm. But then she goes into if you think it's bad with one test, that's on steroids when you go to the multiplicity problem. And then she transitions into the replication crisis. So what I really like is this paper came out in the last issue of Psych Methods and some really good thinking is being done by vanguard kind of academicians Mm -hmm. to think about these very issues. It's a little late to call her today since it's... Yeah, she's (laughs) probably up. Yeah. (laughs) We should probably talk to somebody who actually knows about some of these things then. We know a bit about model stuff. We didn't know Jack about Bayesian stuff, so we <laughs> so we brought somebody in. It would be nice to see how some of these issues exist in the context of thinking about science and how results replicate. You think that she might be willing to talk to us? There are few movies I dislike more than Annie Hall. <laughs> <laughs> There's a point to this. There's a point to this. There are few movies, right? Actually, I don't think there are any movies. Uh And that includes, like, the ones we had to watch in health class in junior high, Uh right? There wasn't middle school when you and I came up. It was junior high. 
I might argue that Annie Hall is the most aggravating movie I have ever had to watch. And we can just put this on to my psychoanalysis as to why that would be. That wow. said, uh-huh. one of my favorite scenes out of any movie mm-hmm. is from Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. The Woody Allen character is in line with whoever, what was it? Diane Keaton? Was yep. that who it was? I don't know. Yep. But they're waiting in line for a movie, and there's this loud mouth behind them going on and on about Fellini movies and about this philosopher. And it's really wonderful. We've talked about this before, of how fun it is when somebody breaks the fourth wall. Mm -hmm. And Woody Allen walks up and looks in the camera lens. And he says something about how this drives him crazy and how he hates this. And he said, wouldn't it be great if this is how life works? And he steps off camera and he pulls in the philosopher (laughs) who this loud mouth is talking about. And the philosopher says, you don't know anything Uh about my philosophy. You're completely wrong. Uh And Woody Allen is, oh my gosh, wouldn't you love it if this could happen in real life? You don't know anything about Marshall McLuhan's oh, really? work. I happen to teach a class at Columbia, so I think that my insights into Mr. McLuhan have a great deal of validity. Yeah. Well, that's funny, because I happen to have Mr. McLuhan right here. I heard what you were saying. You know nothing of my work. You mean my whole fallacy is wrong. How you ever got to teach a course in anything is totally amazing. Boy, if life were only like this. I think we should step off camera and uh-huh. pull in Samantha. Okay. And say, are we just talking out our ass? Uh-huh. <laughs> More like, how much are we talking out of our How much are we talking out of our <laughs> uh-huh. And could you please set us straight? I like that idea. So I think that's where we should leave off. Admittedly, maybe we should have done that 90 minutes ago. <laughs> well, they're separate but related issues. I, I think error control has its own universe, but that universe overlaps with the often ignored universe of modeling and replicability. And it would be very nice to have her sort of the way I think about it is maybe pick up this baton and and run with it. So where does that leave us? It leaves us without any answers. You know, we spend most of our lives, you and I, the statistical Pez dispensers that we are, tip our head back and a pellet comes out and people take it and they go off and they do something that we suggest that they do. This is not that, right? This is us walking a space where there aren't any particular answers. There are good arguments to control the type 1 error rate. There are good arguments not to control the type 1 error rate. And there are good arguments to look at things very, very differently. And that uncertainty in statistics, that uncertainty in the way that we practice statistics, is probably the scariest thing of all for people out there who actually have to do statistics. Oh, you just squared the circle. We're back to the start. In your witch voice, as you're Mm -hmm. hiding and terrorizing Mm -hmm. and emotionally scarring the children on your front porch... Is the thing that you can say to Mm -hmm. scare them the most. All right. We are not going to tell you what to do with regard to controlling type 1 error. You will make errors, whether you control or not. So control for type 1 errors. Don't control for type 1 errors. We don't know what's right. And perhaps that is the scariest of all. Timmy, you were a ninja last year. Get off my porch. (laughs) Thanks, everybody. Go to Lemur Day, support the Duke Lemur Center, dress up, have fun, be safe, and we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Thanks, everybody. Be sure to check us out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you download audio files to play for your pet when you're away, and please leave us a review. Also, you can follow us on Twitter. We are at QuantitudePod. Or visit our website, QuantitudePod.org, to check out past episodes and other cool stuff. Finally, you can get terrifyingly cool Quantitude merch at Redbubble.com, where all proceeds go to donors choose to support remote access in low-income schools. You have been listening to Quantitude. This is where I'd insert a pithy catchphrase if I hadn't procrastinated and run out of time because I need to upload the audio file in a matter of minutes. This episode is brought to you by my teenage daughters, who would like to remind listeners that every story I have ever told about them is an abject lie and that you're all invited to my eventual funeral to witness their final revenge. By the new Borat film, now streaming on Amazon, which thanks Quantitude for actually making it less cringeworthy to watch if you listen to an episode of our podcast first. 
And in honor of Halloween, the Federation of All Things That Terrify Quantitative Methodologists would like to remind you of significant omnibus F tests that have no significant pairwise comparisons, large negative factor loadings that are derived from a set of entirely positive correlations, significant binary by continuous interactions where the simple slopes within each group are non-significant, and by nested model comparisons where the chi-square goes down but the RMSEA goes up. Happy Halloween, everybody, and remember, this is most definitely not NPR. supposed to be? I'm a lemur. A lemur? What a cute costume. Costume? Al, come see this trick-or-treater. Trick-or-treater? Oh my gosh, that is one of the best Halloween costumes I've ever seen. It's not a... I'll go get the candy. Where's the rest of your family, little fella? Are they on another street? I don't actually know. I've been lost for a long time. Maybe my wife can walk you around the neighborhood. Patricia? Patricia? Pat? Patrick. Be there in a jiffy. 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 I'm not sure he should have any candy. Why did you buy so much, dear? I had a coupon. Coupon? Coupon. I am Jiffy. I'm the Quantitude Intern. I do SPSS with my nose. Um. Thank you, thank you. Now we just have to figure out how to get home. I think I met just the guy on my travels who can help me. Wait a minute, mister. Yes, sir? Nobody leaves without singing a Halloween song for their candy. Halloween song? But I don't... Oh, wait. It's close to midnight And something evil's lurking in the dark Under the moonlight You see a sight that almost stops your heart You try to scream But terror takes a sound before you make it You start to freeze As horror looks you right between the eyes You're paralyzed (laughs) 